that down for me, Satan. I write that down for me, Satan. Hello everyone, welcome back to Write That Down. I'm one of your hosts, Justin Nipper. I write for Fight Game Media and edit at fightgamemedia.com. I'm a staff writer at 4wonline.com, wrestlingobserver.com. I am back with Japan's leading pro wrestling author and sociologist and historian and broadcast journalist, Mr. Fumi Saito. On today's episode, we talked about the Japanese-American connection in pro wrestling. And what I mean by that is we talked a lot about Japanese pro wrestlers who went on excursion to the States or lived in the States, worked, gained experience, expanded on themselves, on their character, not just uh, as a wrestler, but as a person. Uh, and each path was pretty different when we talk about someone like Riki Dozan compared to someone like Hiro Matsuda or someone like Masa Saito. That's actually, those are three of the names we talked about today. We talked about Riki Dozan, the one who laid the groundwork. Uh, we talked about so many today. Great Togo, Masa Saito. We talked about Genichiro Tenru's time in Texas, Jumbo Tsuda a little bit. We talked about Kinji Shibuya, Japanese Americans uh, working in the States. Again, Hiro Matsuda and how he trained Ron Simmons, Lex Luger, Hulk Hogan, Paul Orndorff. We talked about Mr. Hito in Calgary, in Canada. Mr. Hito talked about Tokyo Joe. We talked about Mr. Sakurada or Kendo Nagasaki and how him and Mr. Hito would go on to train Bret Hart in Calgary. We talked about a very interesting um, connection between Yokozuna, the wrestler, and famous sumo player Konishiki. That's a very interesting story. Listen for that towards the end of this episode. Um, talked about Tajiri, his influence in the past 20 years, the Green Mist, Keiji Muto, and Great Kabuki, other purveyors of Green Mist. A lot to get into, but it's it, a lot of sidetrack conversations because there's so many different sidewinding paths that today's episode takes us on. So, all right, if you haven't done so already, please subscribe to the Fight Game Media Network podcast feed. You can subscribe on Apple or Spotify, Downcast Stitcher, wherever you usually listen to your podcast. Please do so because it helps us a ton. And also, I have a book out on Amazon right now digital ebook, Stronger Than All. It's a digital match guide to every New Japan Strong match for the first two years of the show's existence. But other than that, I'd really like to get into today's topic. So let's jump in. What I think is so interesting, it's hard to convey, is um, especially for the wrestlers who grew up in Japan, they decide to become a wrestler, they start training, and then they take the trip and they, and they end up staying or, or they... And not only to America, but some of the guys that go to Mexico or even Canada, it's... um people need to realize how it's not a everyday thing and it's not as common as it is to to really uproot completely by yourself and and move overseas i think that we see a little bit over in the west i think it's just more common but f for japan it's 
That's a really strong decision. Very big, big decision. To make? To, yeah, to make it's and to follow real through. Tradition. Yeah, because uh, the father of Japanese pro wrestling, pro wrestling, Ricky Dozan was that way. Mm -hmm. When he was trained under Bobby Browns back in 1951, the following year, he went to San Francisco, Hawaii and San Francisco, and spent a year and a few months just by himself, learn the ropes, of course, and how to be a promoter, or how to be a wrestler, of course, how to be promoter and how to produce a show and the whole nine years of that the A to Z of professional wrestling. Ricky Dozan was that way. He spent a whole year in America and came back. Jan Baba was sent to America. And right after Ricky Dozan passed, Antonio Inoki, young Kanji Inoki, 20 years old then, that was sent to America and spent two years you know, in, in the States. And everybody did that. Uh, Seiji Sakaguchi, Jumbo Tsura, Tenru spent like four or five years in America before he came back. Uh, every single wrestler, Fujinami, Ricky Choshu, yes, every, pretty much everybody. Onita, Fuji, together as a tag team in Tennessee and Puerto Rico. And yeah, yeah, every, pretty much every single star wrestler uh, was sent to overseas, whether it's Mexico or States or Canada. Or people like, if you remember, Mr. Hito from Calgary, he ended up living in Canada. Yeah. Or Grand Hamada, he was sent to Mexico. He got married and, and, and raised family, and now he's back in Mexico too. And uh, so there's, yeah, that's very international, you know, like a business. Like you said, it's really hard to pack up and leave Japan, right? And yeah, especially, I don't know how to explain it other than, yeah, it's just things are so um, set up for you if you're born into in Japan and, and you, you have a, it's... Uh, yeah, I, I guess. I mean, yeah, go to college, yeah. There, to to go overseas and, and do something like this for pro wrestling, it's, it's people need to realize how big of a sacrifice, it's, oh, it's a big sacrifice wherever you're from, but from Japan, you give up a lot. You give up a lot of comfort. Yeah, yeah, I suppose. Um, and what's interesting is, though, professional wrestling, pro wrestling uh, industry, wrestlers and company were doing it before Major League Baseball, Hideo Nomo, pioneer. See, after Hideo Nomo uh, you know, broke the barrier, and then, then it was like a forbidden door in a way that he was forced, and Hideo Nomo was forced to retire from Japanese Base professional baseball because there is no affiliates or any way to start, you know, major league baseball career in Japan. That Nomo had to be the pioneer. Then he opened the door. Then you have people like Hideki Matsui or Ichiro, of course. Now it's Shohei Otani, the, the big, huge superstar in major league baseball. That he's a pitcher, he's a home run butter, and then just it's a different generation now, but the professional wrestling in Japan was doing it way before Major League Baseball. Isn't yeah, that interesting? It's kind of like the 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 path you take if you want to be a world-renowned athlete. You got to go out of your comfort zone. You got to leave Japan. You got to come to the States. You got to come to Mexico. You got to go somewhere where you can... And, yeah, work and learn the language and travel all by yourself and... Be your self-management, you know, manage guy, guy that uh, you book yourself and find yourself work. And, uh, yeah, very, very interesting path, like, if you think about it. That's the big part. It, it's been Not pretty that... normal in, in wrestling business, yes. Mm -hmm. 
And it's normal, but I think it, but the nature of the states definitely forces you to be a traveler, no matter uh, what you do. If you're a wrestler, you're or any other athlete or musician or entertainer, you're gonna have. If you got to go from New York to Baltimore, it's gonna take some time. Either you fly, yeah, you drive, yeah. but. Oh, the great quote from late Nick Bakwenko that the professional wrestling is like you know that the great occupation. You travel with you know, travel with your suitcase. Go around the world, see the world, yeah, with mm. with your suitcase. That's it. All you need is your suitcase and your stuff, and that one suitcase, and you can travel around the world and meet the people, see the world, and earn money and a great living. Uh, that's what Nick Bachwinkle said. Yeah, and he seemed like he did. Yeah, exactly. He did. Yeah, that's what he did. Yeah, and also, yeah, he uh, for Bachwinkle's story a little bit longer that that, that, that he went to UCLA. And uh, the only regret is that he didn't graduate from it, you know, because he was working as a professional wrestler on weekends while mm. he was in college. Yeah, because his father, Bakwinko's father, was Warren Bakwinko, a uh, 1930s wrestler. And uh, actually, Bakwinko was babysitted by Luthes. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I can't imagine. It's more like I can't imagine Luthes as a babysitter. And baby Nick Bakwinko puked on him <laughs> <laughs> wow a famous story yeah yeah probably peed on him too wow yeah <laughs> world champions yeah um, yeah yeah so i mean when, when you uproot from japan and, and like you said we were talking about earlier it's not just the wrestling or performing the job it's also um a massive culture shock wherever you go and you're forced to do it on your own this is it. But wrestlers in Japan dream about going overseas. Wrestlers do, but everyday people don't often. You know, it, it's not. It, it's a unique dream too. It's more and yeah, more common I, now. I knew. I knew I was going to college in America when I was a kid. Mm. I'm going to America. You know. I, I think it seems like uh, it, it just once people go and come back, there's something. Uh, it. it, it helps them grow immensely it's it's the it, oh yeah. uh, it's a key aspect yeah. i mean even the even the top stars today tanahashi nakamura they were yeah. all over here yeah 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 and this internationally mind that that uh, this different orientation altogether huh mm-hmm Mm -hmm. yeah. I, I think it's almost expected now, especially with the younger guys. I mean, all the junior heavyweights uh, at, from New Japan that go over to CMLL or they, they head to ROH to do something in the States. Or they, now they got the mm -hmm. dojo now. You got Yuya Uemura, who's doing his soul searching. And, oh, the Uemura? Oh, he'll be a superstar one day. You know, I because he I'm out in like, L.A. now. Yeah, oh, my gosh. He looks like a Fujinami. He looks like a, a Fujinami. Yeah, I mean, he's a good-looking guy and great body. And he oh, he's big soul. now. It already has this presence. Oh God! He uh, since I'm out in LA, I see him often. He's on. He's on a lot of the smaller indie shows too. The the, the mm -hmm. promotions you don't Pick even remember the name. On week uh, weekend weekend bookings. Yes, I've seen him a yeah. number of times already this year. And the guy, he he's a, he's a man now. He's not a boy. He's big. He's gained a lot of weight, a lot of muscle. He's big. Yeah, he looks like well, an American Bobby football player. He, he the Uemura can be next Kazuchika Okada, huh? I mean, upon his return, you know, something like that. He he's he's so uh, he's more to me like a Tanahashi because of his size, because he's okay, he, okay. he looks like a heavyweight now. He looks like a real right. heavyweight dude. 
Yeah, that's what this excursion like you erased from this young lion's you know undercard scene. Right, when right. You are, when you're a young lion, you have short hair, you have plain, simple black tights and black wrestling shoes, and you work like you wrestle like like rookies. And once you are out in, in out in overseas on your own, you become your own person. I mean, in and out. You expand. That's, you expand on what you know. Yeah, the horizon, the whole horizon of it. Yes. Yeah. But yeah. back to Ricky Dozan. So in father of professional wrestling in Japan, Ricky Dozan did that. Giant Baba did that. Antonio Inoki did that. And everybody in between, all all the way to today's generation. That's uh, yeah, what what the professional wrestling did way before Major League Baseball opened the door. And uh, and also there was a stereotypical Japanese heel professional wrestler in America, like you know post-war great Togo. See, often that times that the the people in, in America confuses this great Togo or in 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 the West Coast like Kinji Shibuya, or oh way back in 1930s the Kaimon Kudo. Or even in 19th century, you had the Sorakichi Matsuda, right? And uh, yeah, uh, we always had Japanese wrestlers, but the, there are quite a few Japanese American wrestlers who portrayed as as, as heel stereotypical Japanese wrestler: Professor Tanaka, Toru Tanaka, Mr. Fuji, Mitsu Arakawa, Duke Keomuka, Mr. Moto. Uh, Oyamakato, those are two, two last names. Oyamakato, uh, yeah. Who played Oyamakato? They're both last name. Yeah, Smith Johnson. <laughs> <Or> great Yamato. <laughs> yeah, but they played typical Japanese Pearl Harbor gimmick, you know, in post-war. See, yep. If you, see, we, we, we met pretty, pretty much too young to remember all these in, in the real time, but there was a, like a Nazi-oriented, uh, like a German heel, right? Like. A, now that the, you cannot do the goose walking or the, the have the swastika on your ring costume or anything like that, it's not politically correct. But uh, back in 60s, uh, 50s, 60s, all the way to even early 80s, you still had that gimmick. Baron von Raschke, you know. Mm. Well, Fritz von Erich was that too. Hans Schmidt, yeah, there's so many. And Japanese wrestlers, I mean, Japanese-American wrestlers played that role. Yeah, it seemed pretty common, not just for uh, Japanese or Japanese-American wrestlers, but for any ethnic ethnocentric wrestlers, the, the gimmick would often be to play up the stereotypes and play heel. Yeah, the Masa Saito, uh, Masa, uh, Mr. Saito, was an interesting uh, case because uh, he's from Japan. And he, you know, participated in 1964 Tokyo Olympic and turned pro. pro and then and, and, uh, after Japan Pro Wrestling, JWA, and short-lived Tokyo Pro Wrestling under Inoki, he wanted to become freelancer and wanted to come to America. And from since the day one, Masa wanted to come to America. Uh, to pursue his career in America. And he was put together uh, the, as a tag team with Kinji Shibuya, who is, what, 15 years older than Kinji, uh, Masa Saito in Roy Shire's San Francisco territory in, in late 60s into early 70s. Kinji Shibuya, the team, team leader, uh, typical, I mean, he, Kinji Shibuya, Japanese-American, you know, but who did the 
typical Japanese stereotype heels throwing salts and, and uh, you know, whatnot. And uh, working host of the team was, you know, young, then really young Masa Saito. Yeah. When great Kabuki Mera, uh, Akihisa Mera came to Japan, he was sent to Indianapolis. He was paired with Mitsu Arakawa, who also was, was some 20 years older than uh, Great Kabuki. And then he, he became working horse uh, of the team. And uh, so pairing Japanese-American and Japanese as a typical Hiro Japanese team. Yeah, uh, very interesting. And Hiro Matsuda actually quit Ricky Dozen's dojo and went to Peru first, then went to you know the, the places like Venezuela and all the way up to Mexico. Then it came, it came to America and he never went home. He became an American citizen. So that's a unique case of it. Masa Saito, Kim Dak, Taiga Toguchi, uh, Killer Khan, for that matter, uh, they all uh, got the green card in America and wanted to live in, in America. Yeah. I think for some path. fans out there, I think what I remember him as was Tiger Chung Lee for WWF. Right, in the, w, uh, the, the 80s version. That's he who I remember. Kim, yeah, he was Kim Duck. In other places like Kansas City, and uh, yeah, um, and in Japan he was either Kim Duck or Taiga Toguchi. He's mm-hmm. a Japanese citizen with Korean descent. Yeah. Oh, we saw him a few years ago at Jimmy Suzuki show. He was in the match. Oh, okay, right. Still oh, okay, wrestling, right? He is having his final retiring match this month. Yeah. Yeah. How old is he? Seventy. Oh. Yeah, definitely, Seven. definitely. Is he older than Ric Flair or younger? Oh, probably same generation, but yeah. even older. Yeah, he was sumo wrestler first, then JW, JWA wrestler, and right before the uh, that the, the big ship going down, that the, he was sent to America and started working California, and uh, then went to central states like Kansas and Missouri and all. Then he traveled around all all, all these territories when there were such thing as territories. See, today's wrestling fans probably don't know the territories that much. You hear about it, right? Mm. You know, and 90s on, it's either WWE or WCW and maybe ECW. Uh, just, you know, uh, big company traveling around states. I mean, all kinds. Not, not, I mean, all over the country, not just one geographic area, but in, uh, up to 84, there was territories. You know, when you lived in Minnesota, it's AWA. If you lived in, in L.A., it's Mike LaBelle's L.A. company, uh, San Francisco, Roy Shire. Up in Oregon, you got a Don Owens. And it's just like a 20, 25 healthy uh, the regional companies running full-time schedule then. And wrestlers traveled, you know, like stay in one place a year or two. It's kind of like working nomad, huh? I guess you know? so, yeah. Yeah. So and there were some wrestlers who would stay in one area for longer time than others, and there were some, like you said, that more nomadic and, and travel everywhere. Yeah. Yeah, the ones who stayed became part of the wrestling office, too, at the end. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah. Um, and Hiro Matsuda, again, was a part of championship wrestling from Florida. Mm-hmm. He'd end up training... A, Quite a few important. Oh, how Hogan, Lex Luger, Paul Orndorff, Ron Simmons. Oh my gosh! Yeah, <laughs> that's four of the biggest names of the '80s and '90s. 
Yeah, Hiro Matsuda. And Hiro Matsuda also worked as a policeman, uh, meaning that uh, they're like a big bodybuilder or football you know, player type coming into NWA Florida office wanting to be a professional wrestler. All right, I'll take you back to the like, like a back room, little you know, dojo in the wrestling ring, put him in the ring and kind of stretch him. Ah, he was the guy. He was the... Uh... Yeah, he, yeah, the Hiro Matsuda was the guy, yeah. He was like the Stu Hart. Yeah, a little bit later on, like Bob Roop did that too, yeah. Mm. And actually, there was no such thing as wrestling school in late 70s into 80s. You mm. have to know somebody to become a professional wrestler. And right. young Terry Bollier, uh, you know, local rock and roll band, rockers, bass player, uh, the later on become Hulk Hogan. But he showed up one day at the wrestling office, wanted to be a professional wrestler because he was a big fan of superstar Billy Graham. You can tell, right? Mm. And... Uh, the hero Matsuda took him back, you know, in a wrestling mat and stretched him. But what was different was that uh, Terry Bollet, Hulk Hogan, later on, he showed up very next day. Let's do it again. So he decided to train him. Yeah. So that, then you know the rest of the uh, story. Ron Simmons. Uh, oh, he also trained late Ray Hernandez, who was Hercules. Yeah. Who yeah. would also, you know, work WWF, but uh, be a part of uh, tag team with Scott Norton, right? Uh, Jurassic Powers, right, right, mm -hmm. right. New Japan, yeah, and also Lex Luger, Ron Simmons, yeah, and Paul Orndorff. Oh, those are big people. See, Hiro Matsuda only trained the guys that had legitimate athletic background and also already had body, you know, mm -hmm. height and weight. You know, not the little guy, you know, who who come in and want to be a wrestler. Now, today, you, you can sign up with wrestling school and pay, what, a couple thousand dollars to get trained, you know, and then you don't know where to be working. But the, the back then, you have to have connection or be stretched by somebody like Hiro Matsuda. Interesting, huh? Wow. And he, he lived <laughs> in Florida for quite a while. Oh, forever, until, until his passing, yes. Hmm. Now, what was interesting, yeah, he, we were talking... Yeah, became an American citizen, too. Uh, what was... <laughs> excuse me. What was interesting, we were talking about earlier, we were talking yeah. about, you know, the... Hiro Matsuda didn't usually have to do this, but a lot of other wrestlers would do the ethnic gimmick. What I thought was interesting is that Ricky Dozan never had to, and never once did any of right, the right. ethnic stuff. He came in and he was that, uh, big yeah, superstar he, uh, treatment. was going to be... Uh, and also, he was going to be the pioneer of wrestling company, as it is. There was no such pro such thing as pro wrestling in, in the beginning of 1950s, post-war period. Ricky Dozan was going to be the top star. Ricky Dozan was going to be the promoter and, and a booker, uh, the producer, the whole whole package of it. So uh, he was sent to America to learn the business. Yeah, mm. And also, he had the superstar aura from the day one. Yeah, sure. I think. And yeah. he had the sumo background. He had the legitimacy. Yeah. And also, time was right. The beginning of television, beginning of pro wrestling in America, in Japan. So much like your gorgeous George, you know, 1948, gorgeous George, the beginning of television, beginning of rest, TV wrestling. And Ricky Dozan was that in Japan. Not to take anything away from his own ability. He was like a great talent and also like, a, you know, somebody has this superstar thing in him, right? Mm. And he was that, yeah. 
So the going to America back in Ricky Dozen into Jan Baba and Antonio Inoki, I mean, as a rookie uh, days that going to America and learn the ropes were like a one-way ticket to your stardom too. But you mm. have to sacrifice, like you said, like you said. See, Baba traveled to, uh, just, uh, only had a one-year experience, Jan Baba only had one-year experience professional wrestling. He was already sent to America and he was already working Madison Square Garden. Yeah. Yeah, some wrestlers seem to have a different trajectory. I mean, some that were somehow already established as an athlete, whether it was Jumbo or like Jumbo from the Olympics, same with Ricky Choshu, Baba in yeah, baseball. But Jumbo Jumbo Tsuda didn't really work big territories. He went to Amarello and learned, you know, wrestling from Dory Funk Jr. and Terry Funk. And his teammate, rookie teammate was Stan Hansen. You know, that was a different kind of like a destiny, fate thing. The giant Baba was sent to travel around the you know states like, like under the giant wood. Decade later, that the giant Baba had uh, this. It was seven feet to giant Baba, the Baba the giant, that uh, had a single match against Bruno San Martino, had a single match against people like Luthes, had a single match world title match against people like Freddie Blassie at the time. So he giant Baba did have main event treatment pretty much right from the beginning. Whereas Antonio Inoki was sent to America right after Rick Dozen passed. Then he went to Los Angeles territory where he wasn't the main event. He went to, you know, the wrestler Sonny Myers booked him to Central States and worked Kansas as a Tokyo Tom and wasn't exactly main event. He, Inoki, young Inoki went down to Houston, Tennessee, uh, Texas, for Paul Bosch territory, and then teamed up with people like Duke Keomuka, but he wasn't main event. He went down to Tennessee, teamed up with young Hiro Matsuda, but he wasn't exactly main event. You know what I'm saying? Mm. So then he didn't go to really mainstream territory like East Coast. You know, Inoki spent his time in Tennessee, Kansas, up in Oregon, back in LA, uh, never New York. You know, so because they were a place to work, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. and uh, that the Oregon was interesting because he spent like seven months in, in Oregon all by himself, a real rookie, Kanji Inoki, and his best friend was traveling partner was young Pat Patterson. Hmm. Yeah, interesting, huh? I mean, like they, they uh, like uh, uh, there's a story that on Inoki's birthday, Pat Patterson took him to Japanese restaurant and 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 bought him sukiyaki. Oh, and Inoki never forgot that. <laughs> Interesting, huh? What year They're was both that? Young, hungry rookie. Oh, 64. Somewhere was that there. when uh, yeah. sukiyaki song was famous? Yeah, I guess. Yeah, I guess. I must have been, the huh? Japanese pop song. Yeah, pop song that hit the number one in top 40 in, in America, huh? Yep. Kyu Sakamoto. Kyu Sakamoto. Yeah. Tsukiyaki uh, song, it's called in English. Um, in, in English. Go If you're it's listening, go out there and uh, check it out on YouTube. Yeah, like a right? Very cool. Like a mix <laughs> of uh, Enka and Pop. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It looks like your 60, you know, MTV that they they had like a certain black and white film, like your, he looked like a Del Shannon or somebody like that. Yeah. Yeah. It, it was really, really interesting. But that was a time that Inoki traveled all by himself, 20, 21-year-old Inoki, 
you know, way, way before he was superstar in Japan. He, he spent two years traveling, driving, you know, from LA to Seattle to Seattle to up in Oregon. He didn't fly. He drove. He drove, and it's very interesting time that made him the man he was. You know, is today. I think. Yeah. Hmm. And between for, yeah, in, yeah, like people like Sage Sakaguchi spent good four years in, in America. Yeah, Sakaguchi is another one who kind of I felt like anytime he would be presented, he was presented like a star as well. Right, because he was a national judo champion and world ranked judoka. Yeah, and he he looked like a, a big guy, big dude coming into wrestle. So oh yeah, because he's like six six and three hundred pound Japanese. Oh, that's that's big, and also judo people are against him going into pro wrestling. Really? Oh, because he was go was going to be the uh, leader of like a judo uh, in I don't say industry, but uh, judo. Some of the judo people really against you know judoka turning into professional wrestler. Probably right. the Masahiko Kimura experience too. But uh, the judo people think it is complete legitimate sport right mm -hmm. why would you want to go into pro wrestling that's a show business kind of thing we have same stigma in japan mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah well it's funny like you said kimura and sakaguchi they were judoka and they were pro wrestlers number one yeah, yeah. they're pro wrestlers and sakaguchi loved pro wrestling secretly as a kid when he grew up in you know in kyushu that uh, when he was sixth grade went to watch ricky dozen you know mm. so so he, he told me that yeah and uh he wanted to be pro wrestler because being judo amateur or the college coach at best right mm. or olympic coach to be the biggest but the, that wouldn't be your professional salary or anything like that you know that you ended up being like a college coach with college um kind of income you know mm. I would not just because uh, income and money thing, but the Sakaguchi loved professional wrestling. He wanted to be a wrestler, and he came to America. And uh, he's an English-speaking Japanese wrestler, yeah? It's learning language is another thing, too. Baba, Inoki, they all speak English because mm -hmm. he learned on the road. That's a good thing, right? Because to be an international wrestler. Oh, yeah. It's important, and especially... I, I remember uh, that you can watch uh, Masa Saito watching uh, yeah, he has a strong accent but he but, would do uh, it he, in english everything yeah. he would do it in yeah. english you know who spoke really well i remember was hiroshi hase hiroshi oh, hase is very educated yeah he's a very uh it was when he was with in wrestling in uh in canada and he yeah, went, up in calgary the end the very last days of the, the stamp canadian the calgary stampede wrestling right him and owen hart young owen hart yes and uh, Keiichi Yamada before he was Liger. You know, a mm -hmm. lot, a lot, a lot of wrestlers spent like whole year in Calgary. Uh, Shinya Hashimoto, Kensuke Sasaki. Yeah. Oh, a lot, a lot. Oh, the Junji Hirata before he was super strong machine. Norio Honaga. Uh, oh, this is, this is so many wrestlers. And, and also Masachono uh, yeah, and Muto. Uh, Masachono. Will spend good one year in Europe with Aro Vance company. That's right. Uh, Tenzan as well. Yeah. America. Tenzan, uh, the, see, when people like uh, the, the, the 
Tenzan or Kojima's generation, there was no territory in America to work. Either you work for WCW a little bit, or you have to be signed with WWE. That means you quit New Japan and sign. You know, then mm-hmm. Europe and Mexico was a place that then, yeah. Tenzan, uh, the Shinjiro Otani, Ohara, yeah, a lot of people spent time in, in out of once European territory, then was sent to either Puerto Rico or Calgary because the, the local promotion, that the regional company existed. Then when once you went to Calgary, there was the, the Katsuji Adachi, uh, who is Mr. Hito in Calgary, who was JWA wrestler, but would, would travel to America and ended up living in Calgary forever. And uh, he made his home, his house into basement territory. I mean, like a dormitory for Japanese wrestlers. They all mm. live downstairs of his house. Yeah, very interesting. And now, also Joe Daigo. Yeah, Tokyo Joe. Canada. Tokyo Joe. He had a very uh, unfortunate car accident in Ice Barn. You know, like a frozen, ice cold Calgary winter, and he had a car accident, and one leg uh, had to be amputated. And and uh, but he didn't come come back to Japan. And Tokyo Joe Daigo ended up living in Canada. You know, Canada has good, well, the good uh, benefit and uh, the the insurance, and uh, yeah, he uh, he became pretty much Canadian citizen and lived the rest of his life in Canada. Uh, Joe Daigo, I'm talking about. Is it right that he or and uh, Mr. Hito helped train Bret Hart? Uh, actually, it was. Mr. Hito and Mr. Sakurara, later on Kendo Nagasaki. At the time he was living in, in, in Calgary, Mr. Hito and Sakurara, Kendo Nagasaki later on. It was a time that the Bret Hart graduated from high school and wanted to go to college and wasn't sure about becoming a wrestler. He was going to be a professional wrestler sooner or later, but he wanted to go to college and learn the filmmaking. That mm-hmm. was Bret Hart's, you know, another passion. And every, the Saturday morning, um, then also he, young Bret Hart, moved out of the Stu Hart Mansion up in Hill that the, to, be, uh, to be on his own, right? And Bret Hart had an apartment. Then every Saturday morning when he was like 19, every Saturday morning, Mr. Hito and Sakurara knock, knock, knock at the Bret Hart's, young Bret Hart's apartment. Let's go train. I mean, trained by Japanese wrestler, Bret Hart. <laughs> and, uh, and then they brought him back to uh, famous Stu Hart's dungeon and stretched him, you know. And junior high school teenage Owen Hart watching every bit of it, too. Isn't hmm. that interesting? Yeah. Yeah. Because Owen Hart, the youngest of 12, you know, 12 kids, eight brothers and four sisters, you know, 12, big family. And the, the, the Owen Hart was the youngest, but he was the one who knew who wanted to be wrestler. Uh, I mean, right from the beginning. Yeah, but he was just too young. And Mr. Hito sent, you know, the, the teenage Owen Hart back upstairs. I go, no, this is not for the place for kid. Go back upstairs. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? Mm-hmm. And st- I believe Stu Hart trusted Mr. Hito and Sakurada so much that, uh, that uh, he should be you know, the bread should be trained under Japanese uh, method or something. Yeah. I, do you think so it shows? Not, yeah. Do you think it shows in his wrestling? I, well, the, 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 well, discipline, yeah, discipline part itself and also that the wrestling, yes, 
and also not complaining and the wrestling brotherhood thing, camaraderie thing, and uh, you trust who you're working with kind of thing. And uh, yeah. And also, I don't think the Stu, father, wanted to train his own son. You mm. know? They wanted to watch, you know? Yeah. Critique. But uh, yeah. Yeah. So the Mr. Hito and Sakurada was perfect coach because mm. they didn't speak perfect English either. They did, though. They did speak English, but it wasn't perfect. But, uh, you know, wrestling has no language barrier, right? When you wrestle, you wrestle. Uh, and this uh, Mr. Hito and Mr. Sakurada, Kendo Rasaki, you know, trained Bret Hart thing is not really credited, you know, right? So uh, it should, yeah, it should be out, out. Yeah, this story is truth. Yeah, and, and it's kind Bret of Hart. in the DNA of, uh, of North American wrestling is the, yeah. the fingerprints of Japanese pro wrestling. Yeah, and a little intermingling. bit. Intermingling. also... Bret Hart himself wrote that story on his uh, uh, his weekly column when Bret Hart uh, weekly column on Calgary's Sun that the you know that the local paper thing mm-hmm. he talked about it shortly after he retired from wrestling. Yeah, it was Japanese wrestler who did this. <laughs> I believe yeah. he wrote a little bit about it in his book too. Oh, okay, very good, very good. There's more than one. There are more than one book, right? Yeah, on, the, on the it, yeah. Uh, it, this is the the autobiography, the one that he, the most recent oh, okay, one. Okay. I think it's just called Hitman. Okay, I think I have it somewhere here. Yeah, there's so many wrestling books. You know, you bought it and not. You know, sometimes you know it's on your bookshelf that they haven't read it. You know, mm-hmm. just like the Sheik's book I started, but they haven't finished. You yeah, know? who you were quoted in uh, at length throughout the book, and you know, you showed me a book before we started uh, tonight. We were. You show me the what uh, was it? great Togo. The, the one on the great Togo on cover. The, the new book just came out about the uh, stereotype Japanese wrestler in America and the, the historical you know importance behind it. Because there was a war hmm. in 1941. There was a Pearl Harbor in 1945. There was a Hiroshima and Narasaki, and we all overcame. You know, it's the wartime. You have Russia and Ukraine now that. Even in this 21st century, you know, world, but uh, there was a war between Japan and, and America way back 70 years ago. But the uh, wrestling business kind of used this Japanese, uh, you know, war story as a to to to, to develop the, like a so hated heels. And Mr. Uh, Great Togo was that, you know. And uh, he invented the sneak attack from back, you know, like a par harbor attack, throwing salt to people's, you know, in the opponent's eyes. That the yeah, this is a typical, stereotypical Japanese heels that designed that the style of Japanese heel for the next decade or so. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. Well, and we have to overcome that though. But yeah, I think the best example of this caricature and we have to talk about him is probably one of the most important japanese american wrestlers mr fuji right hawaii from hawaii from hawaii but he he played that role for years and years with the wwf all the way to 80s oh 90s with yokozuna yeah because wwe is is the place for like your cliche right i guess so good and bad yeah, because Yokozuna, you know, the, the, uh, the, the Kokina, Rodney, 
he is Americans, you know, someone American from San Francisco, of course, the cousin of today's Roman Reigns, but the, he took that small gimmick in Japan and became Yokozuna, and he was the superstar, right? And actually, when Yokozuna became the Rodney, Yokozuna became superstar in WWE. It was not really stolen from uh, Sumo. In Japan, actually, Rodney had blessing from Konishiki, a real Sumo wrestler from Hawaii. Konishiki told him to do the gimmick in America. And ah, he, he Konishiki was very yeah. famous. Yeah, Konishiki and Samu, you know, Wild Samoan Samu, and Rodney, when he was Kokina, way before he became Yokozuna, those were friends in Japan. Huh. I never knew yeah, that. A, yeah, as a Kokina, uh, Rodney, before, way, years before Yokozuna, Samu and Kokina were regular tag team for New Japan. He, th those two came to Japan like five, six times a year for a bunch of years, regular. And New Japan thought they were like countryside Elvis. You know, not a headline main event, but the most over American wrestler in house show, you know, environment. Mm -hmm. You know, like the attraction. Big, huge pop. Yeah, yeah. That uh, he, you know, Kokina, you know, 500 guy, pound guy, he let Ricky Choshi body slam him pretty much every night. Hmm. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Yokozuna, was, that's, a, that's a unique, it's kind of a reverse... Um... It's re it's a reverse of what we're talking about today in some ways. Um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So they used it all the way to nineties, huh? Yeah. The, with Yokozuna, he, I mean, he was such a talented pro wrestler that he, after a couple of years, uh, you could say he was mo known more for for himself. And I, I think that the the Japanese stereotypical character kind of fell to the wayside. Well, Small wrestler thing. Yeah, yeah, he just became you know uh, another part of the uh, you know he was another wrestler. Um, well, the, also WWE 90s superstar, you know. Right, or, right, right. Yeah. And if it wasn't for Yokozuna, Fatu wouldn't become Rakishi either. Exactly. exactly. Rakishi means sumo wrestler. Yokozuna means sumo grand champion. It's two Japanese words in it. And had a Jap that the Japanese sumo, oh, not a tights, but the, what do you call that? You know, sumo belts. Yeah, like almost yeah, like a... The g-strings <laughs> yeah kind of the sumo uh, attire yeah 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 but uh, originally konishiki gave him all the his own gimmick gave him kimono and other things that the, you wear that in america and it was had, had a blessing from real sumo champion konishiki so it wasn't really like gimmick gimmick so the, that's a backstory Wow, people should realize Konoshiku was one of the biggest uh, foreign sumo stars of the 90s before Akebono. Um, right, right. As a hip-hop album, too. Yeah. Oh, now, now he does. Now he still travels back and forth from Hawaii to Tokyo to Hawaii to Tokyo. And he was just here just last week. Yeah. Yeah. Another way he speaks Maybe Konoshiku, fluent Japanese. Yeah, Ko fluent Japanese, right. Uh, he could have been a good professional wrestler if he I wanted to. I think so. I think so. Yeah. Konishiki, yeah. He's kind of yeah, like Ake... a Rikishi be Fatu before the Fatu gimmick. Right, right. Uh, same way, Akebono. See, Akebono was a big, huge wrestling fan grew up, you know, growing up in Hawaii. Every Saturday afternoon, all the kids were gone from the street because 
they all the kids had to go to somebody's house and watch wrestling Saturday afternoon. Uh, that the Akebono was telling a story about that. Mm. Yeah, oh, big huge wrestling fan. But the people in Sumo Association, you know, Sumo people, uh, they, they had this, you know, this is uh, they were always against the idea of your Sumo, you know, superstar becoming pro wrestler. You know, take just like judoka. Yeah, yeah. So there's some certain stigma to it, you know. But they were secretly big wrestling fan. Yeah. Interesting, huh? Yeah. So the uh, not see, Rodney Konishiki. I mean, uh, Yokozuna or uh, all these people are not Japanese, but they did the Japanese gimmick in American soil, huh? That's how deep rooted it was, right? It was uh, so common that even non-Japanese wrestlers were using the idea, the archetype. Yeah, but all the way to seventies, it was typical that you have these knee tights, like Masa Saito had it for all, all his days. But the, you know, the t two colors with little round padding on your on your knee and two different color and barefooted, and you probably wear geta, you know, the wooden sandals. Mm -hmm. And used as foreign object and uh, <laughs> salt throwing, typical thing. And but it had to change up in, in, in the 80s. Therefore, you have great Kabuki, Kendo Narasaki, and as a, as a Kabuki's son, you there you have great Muta. Yeah, more uh, more fantastic, more fantastical, more uh, less. Uh, Ethnic oh, the, uh, stereotype, science, science, science fiction, yeah, scary movie, yeah, like a fantasy or... thing, like kind of uh, ancient Japan with oni demons and uh, you know, right, kind of... right, those things, yeah, facial was... paint, yes, and 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 the real mystical, you know, mysterious martial arts skills and stuff like that. So it would be more along the lines of something you would see with like the Undertaker or uh, right. Right. It's more oh, oh, suspend your disbelief. Like, ta Taji, a little bit younger, Tajiri took it so seriously. You know, that the green mist was adapted from great Kabuki and great, you know, great Muta, but uh, he used his the green poison mist, you know, blown from his mouth so effectively. And the finish had to be something with karate. There, there you have your bazo kick. Mm -hmm. that, uh, that he didn't want to have regular wrestling trunks, that he had to come up with martial arts-looking uh, the pants, you know? And uh, yeah, so the image was kept, right? That's what I'm saying. That's another, that Tajiri's uh, late ECW look, his costume is really copied even today. You see wrestlers dressed the same way. Yeah, right. And also, he knew his body, that the short trunks wouldn't look that good. But with that, that the black long pants, that would make him look like a martial artist. Yeah, it gave him the appearance like he was bigger than he actually was, because at the yeah, time he was wrestling. Showings, right. yeah, yeah, I mean he was wrestling with very big, big guys in ECW. It was a t it was a time when just in re in general wrestlers were were bigger. Yeah, in, in well thought out, you know. Tajiri's philosophy, smaller guys should be wrestling big, huge guys instead of a smaller guy against smaller guy. That's I see. Like, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Ray Mysterio is such a big star because he worked against people much bigger than he was. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, Tajiri was always fighting big guy and uh, does his tactics and, uh, yeah, martial arts 
in the, in the, the mist, green mist. And yeah, so he really produced himself that he, he should be working much taller guy and much bigger guy. That is him. Yeah. It's almost different psychology to it, you know. You would think smaller guy would be arresting you know, another smaller guy, but that wasn't his idea. But the people like Keiji Muto, Great Muta, Killer Khan, Kendo Narasaki, or even you know, Hiroshi Hase, they had a, or, or Masachono, they were pretty tall, heavyweight. Mm -hmm. So, he, yeah, he didn't have to think that. And Masachono, too, was wearing that, the Japan tights in, in America. Sure. I think Hashimoto yeah. had more of a martial arts style uh, gimmick. When right, right from, right from the beginning, right. But he was Hashif Khan, the Mongolian in Canada, though. Mm -hmm. Hashimoto. Moto? Yeah. Because in Calgary, in one territory, you cannot have seven Japanese wrestlers. <laughs> right, you know? right. And, yeah, so one, the super strong machine, Junji Hirata, was uh, Sunny Two Rivers, Sunny Two Rivers, the Native American wrestler. Mm -hmm. Hiro Saito, when he worked, he was from Cambodia or something. <laughs> so yeah. I, I think uh, uh, Hase was like a Viet, was a Viet Cong. Viet Cong, yeah. yeah. Like he was from the right. Vietnam Army or something. Yeah, so so you had to change gimmick a little bit, but because you can't have seven, eight Japanese wrestlers in such a small territory, you know. I mean, it's too obvious. But, uh, too obvious, but uh, it's okay. That was a time that, that he wanted, you know, all these Japanese young wrestlers wanted to, you know, had to spend time overseas until he comes home to be the next next generation superstar. It worked. Mm. That's the pattern. That's that's the that's the path yeah, that's the been laid out for the past. Yeah, for the past fifty years, and now it's the system and the technology too is a little bit different. That the New Japan has its own streaming service, New Japan World, and also have English speaking show, New Japan Strong, and New Japan has LA Dojo run by uh, Katsuyori Shibata and training American young wrestler under Japanese method. Right, so so it's like LA Dojo is like a American branch of New Japan Pro Wrestling in Amer in LA that that'll develop Japanese style American wrestler now. It's a, a totally new style. era of of, of this kind so. of excursion. It's kind of a lot. It's like a reverse a version of it where a lot of uh, talent from Western countries are going to either the states or Japan to learn or. Yeah, there's a oh, lot of for the past fifteen years, more American or Canadian wrestlers or Australian, you know, for that matter, that come to Japanese dojo like Zero One Dojo or Pro Wrestling Noah Dojo or Japan for that matter. Yeah, always one or two Western English speaking uh, rookies in Japanese dojo now. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely it's a, an important uh, little. I guess what do we call it? A, not not an uh, an experience, but it's an important f factor or characteristic about wrestling these days. Is, is that business? Yeah, wrestling business it's good, and though, because how it functions. Wrestling yeah. has no boundary, no long no language barrier. It's wrestling, you know what you call it, anything you want to call it, sports entertainment, whatnot. But it's always professional wrestling. It's hmm. Pretty much universal language. It's like a, see, WWE is so promo and skit oriented, storyline oriented. But once, you know, even with WWE, once the, this, the the bell rings, that you just have to have a match, you know. Yeah. And 
And even the, the, the today's superstars like, oh, John Moxley, he grew up watching Onita's video. <laughs> right? Now he uses his yeah. music and comes out in a leather jacket. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So it's like, oh, wow, it's like 50 years later. It's, it's, the cultures are more mixed. It's a wonderful thing. Yeah. yeah, but it's interesting to see the impact of that generation when, you know, videotapes were being passed around. That That's my generation with the videotapes and right. DVDs VHA. later. VHS. Yeah, DVD. And now then the internet, the you, internet could, you could trade. You could trade more conveniently. You could trade with uh -huh, anybody. Uh -huh. Oh, send so. the video over your cell, you know, or your cell phone, mm -hmm. uh, your smartphone, iPhone. Oh, or you yeah, go to your I friend's house. You go to your friend's house and you watch something. Hey, I look at this video. It's just you can be exposed to anything so immediately now where it was just a yeah no delay then. no delay whatsoever right? yeah there was a huge delay when you were trying to uh, watch uh, japanese wrestling sometimes if a tokyo dome Send show DJ happened from, from japan yeah you're gonna yeah. find out a couple months later what happened and it's usually like right. a, a copy of someone else's copy, copy who takes it off copy. tv oh, right. unless you wanted to spend a lot of money to buy the commercial tape but it wouldn't work because you'd have to buy the special vcr for it I guess, yeah. And nobody SPHS. had Betamax over here by, you know, the mid-80s, so the, we didn't have right, any of those right. either. Oh, Betamax died out in Japan, too, rather quick. Yeah, that's yeah. that's an interesting story. At the beginning, some people had, you know, two you know, VCRs, either Beta or v VHS. Mm. For some reason, VHS won. <laughs> hmm. Yeah. Um, oh, one other wrestler that just comes to mind that spent a lot of time in the States and I watched when I was growing up was Hakushi or Jinsei Shinzaki. Oh, okay, okay, right. He, he was discovered by WWE during 1994 uh, Mania Tour, the first WWE solo uh, Japanese tour, the only four shows, Yokohama, uh, Sapporo, Hiroshima, and Osaka. It was lineup was great because you had Undertaker, uh, the Macho Man Randy Savage, Bret Hart, uh, uh, Smoking Guns, Bob Backlund, uh, Alondra Blaze, of course. It was a real good lineup, but WWF at the time, back in '94, did not have regular TV in Japan, only VHS. And they booked such a big arena like Yokohama Arena, the Sapporo, the Osaka, the Hiroshima. It was all big house, but didn't really draw, you know. Oh, oh, oh yeah. Oh, when you don't have TV, you know. But uh, during the during the tour, say Tenru worked, and other people worked. Uh, Hakushi, then Jin, Jinsei Shinzaki, was brought in from Michinoku to to. Uh, to be the, I think, one to three kids opponent at the time. Yep, the SummerSlam, I remember. Yeah, they did that, right. And Sean Waltman, one to three kid at the time, already had Japanese experience in independence in Japan. That uh, he was like uh, navigating the tour, you know, and how to go to Ramen House and all these things, you know, how to go to 7-Eleven Lawson's. And, uh, so he was like the, the road manager for the, for the WWE tour too? <laughs> Unofficial, but unofficial, he, yeah. He knew how, uh, yeah, because he knew how to get around in Japan. That's interesting, yeah. yeah. Interesting. But that's where but, they uh, found uh, 
Shinzaki. Huh. Right, right. And it was it was proper visa. You know, WWE will give you that the working visa. And uh, the same year, '94, uh, by November Survivor Series, he was brought to America and spent two years there. Yeah, as Hakushi. Right. Right. So White okay. Angel Hakushi. So he. So they initially brought him in in Japan for the Japanese matches with one, two, three kid, and then later brought him over. Yeah. The idea was, you know, that the uh, all, all American show wouldn't draw. So oh, they had Undertaker, they had Yokozuna, they had Bret Hart, Macho Man, uh, very good, you know, crew, uh, Bam Bam Bigelow, Bob Backlund. But the, the local promoter or the Ten Roots people thought uh, they needed Japanese help. In fact, they didn't bring in WWE wrestling ring. They used Tenru's WAR ring. With they taped the rope with uh, white and red and blue. Uh, you know, remember that the nineties mm. wrestling ring in WWE you had a red, white, and blue and ropes. Red. Yeah, right. They taped it. They used WAR's Tenru's ring for that tour, and Tenru worked. And all Japan women's, you know. Bonakano, Kyoko Inoue, Saki Hasegawa, they all rotated and had single match against Alander Blaze. And yeah, Hakushi was brought in for the tour. And he was so well liked that, oh, love this guy, we gotta bring him to Japan. They, they thought he was Japanese monk, <laughs> Buddhist monk. Huh. Yeah. It was very, had, it was a unique look for sure. Yeah. And then, Bret Hart like this, or the very initial uh, In Your House pay-per-view. Mm -hmm. The very first uh, In Your House mini pay-per-view that uh, Bret Hart's opponent was Hakushi. Yeah. So right. like, with yeah, him and uh, Jerry Lawler was involved right. and right, Akio right, Sato. Right. right, as a manager, uh, Hakushi's manager, he had a different name. Akio Sato had a I, I forget. She, no. Yeah, it had a different name to it. But the, he, he was had white he was face white. paint. Right, right. That was that. Yeah. And uh, yeah, actually, uh, Hakushi, Jinsei Shinzaki then was like only third year, third year into business. It was already good, mm. you know, gymnast. And she came out of uh, the, the, the company called Jack, J A C, Japan Action Club. It's a stuntman company. Hmm. In the movie Stuntman? Yeah. Yeah. He was the actor there before he was wrestler. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. yeah, he wanted to be wrestler, you know, but uh, he didn't know how. Then he joined Universal, uh, that uh, Japanese Lucha Libre company mm -hmm. at the time. Then they broke, uh, Great Sasuke broke out from Universal and started his own regional company up, up north in Japan as Michinoku Pro Wrestling. Most of the guys from Universal joined. Great Sasuke started, Super Super Dolphin, Shinzaki, and very young 18-year-old Takamichinoku was there. Young 18-year-old Kazu Hayashi was there. 20-year-old uh, rookie, the then uh, Gantetsu uh, Sakigake, now he's Dick Togo. A lot of, lot of, lot of good rookie was there. Real young Jado Gedo worked there too. And... Uh, uh, there was an interesting, very interesting package there, way back in the early 90s. They all became somebody they own. Interesting, huh? 
Shinzaki kind of had a he had a different he kind of had his own ethnic gimmick when he started out, didn't he? He had a like a Mongolian uh, character. Oh, mask under mask. Mm -hmm. It wasn't his choice. Yeah, right. Uh, Mongolian Chohi or something like that. Yeah, something like it that. It wasn't yeah. his choosing. Yeah, yeah. That and generation, those these yeah. guys that you mentioned, the the Shinzaki and Takamichinoku and Dick Togo and D Jado Dick Togo, yeah, and Sasuke and Super Dolphin, Sasuke. they all. Right. That's a very uh, unique set of figures. That it, it's a very different approach than the the Riki Dozan approach. You know right. what I mean? To because uh, uh, start out as independent, and right. never started as young lion of old new japan or anything like that no safety they net. had their idea but they had their idea but they, they are bigger wrestling fans when rest of america they grew up you know dreaming becoming pro wrestler and they were going to become wrestler not you know no matter what that that kind of guys i mean like american independent kind of mindset you know and uh yeah then all of them Happened to be about same size, you know, five seven, five eight, hundred eighty pound, like all junior heavyweight, light heavyweight, or middleweight, or whatever that, that, that size, and did the lucha libre training in Japan, and then Michinoku style evolved into the, the Japanese interpretation of lucha libre and junior heavyweight division, and they became just a very unique style. Yeah. Very much copied today. Very influential on what in you see American today. independent scene too, especially. And yeah. Also, those six uh, Michinoku pro wrestler had American exposure at the Bailey Legal uh, oh. ECW very first pay per view. If you remember, unforgettable six wrestler. Right then, the people from uh, what's the a Japanese? I mean, American lucha libre company that. Ian uh, Icon, no. Uh, they were at the uh, with with ECW Philadelphia based. Yeah, yeah, they were fans then and sitting in in the Chikara watching Mitch Chikara. It became Chikara. There you mm -hmm. go. I'm sorry. So Chikara is yeah also Pennsylvania guys. Inter yeah, interpretation of lucha libre japanese style and smaller guys doing their own style and so inspired by it and became chikara Culture you know is very interesting huh i think that at least in my personal experience i'll never forget watching that match because it was like uh there were because there wasn't the access to a high level japanese high level lucha libre it was you could see it but it wasn't like you could just flip on youtube and and scan through whatever you wanted to watch Not back in 1997 no so seeing that and and the and fumi you were there so yeah, i can't I imagine there, yeah. what was the the crowd was just losing their mind they would never saw all, anything all, all like, night long all night long but especially i think the there was a, the, yeah. but they that match had a very special reaction people were just, every other moment they were just it was amazing to see because it was because so something they haven't seen live and yeah. it was it was executed perfectly because that was packaged three japanese against three japanese the the, the six-man tag team is typical michinoku style you know, mm -hmm. Which is trios style. style. Mm. Yeah. Or which is Mexican, like a format. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, and it was just, I mean, it's fast when you watch it, but back then it was like lightning speed. 
Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah. It was it's like something you haven't seen. No yeah, some, way. Something yeah. you've never seen. And right. the young Takamichinoku was really uh really talented and special to watch. He was he had a lot of charisma. He flew mm-hmm. as fast as anybody else at the time. Um oh, oh yeah, hundred sixty pound guy. Oh. Uh, he's another one who who was in the States and, and really uh, his his legacy is yeah, will always it was be interesting tied to the States. because great Sasuke came to WWE Monday Night Raw taping to have this test match, audition match. And Takamichinoku was initially brought in to be his great Sasuke's opponent. WWE instead signed Takamichinoku instead of great Sasuke. Hmm. Sasuke didn't want to move to America. He wanted to fly back and forth and back and forth and in, in, in honor WWE schedule. And there's no such way, right? That hmm. the Takamichinoku, on the other hand, were willing to move to America and live. And uh, yeah, WWE created WWE light heavyweight title just for him. Remember? Oh yeah, there was a big tournament. There was a, Tajiri was in it. Uh, uh, mm. Jerry Lynn and Brian Christopher. Yeah, and they also opened door for American light light heavyweight you know, wrestlers too. Very interesting era. I always felt like that was a response to how well the WCW cruiserweight division was doing because it felt it was good to watch those uh, kinds of wrestlers on WWF programming, but at the same time, it wasn't at the same level of what WCW was offering. Yeah, but the Monday Nitro wasn't about them either, you know. That's yeah. true too. That's true too. Yeah. But um, yeah. Good that's... wrestling. Ray Ray Mysterio, you know, before he was WWE superstar, Ray Mysterio Jr. was with WCW. So a psychosis that the Juventu Guerrero, all these good Mexican, the the cruiserweight they call it, uh, talents there, but they didn't do anything for them, you know. Hmm. But yeah, like Nitro those two was, again, uh, they started in Japan too. Not started in Japan, but really got the buzz going when they went to Japan. So yeah, because you will be working with people same size, in the same time, in the same style, kind of you know very similar. So hmm. yeah. So this yeah. So we, <laughs> you know, that the sidetracked so much, but. The, overall Japanese wrestling influence in in America and uh yeah and also American influence in Japan too of course this is these two countries yeah pro yeah. wrestling as it is today this is like the primer on it but I'm sure we'll get into more detail when we cover more of these wrestlers and uh you know solo bases when we focus one show on one or two wrestlers and we can study their careers because like you said today, there were so many different paths we took today getting sidetracked because but but that just shows how many fingerprints are all over uh wrestling from japanese uh, pro wrestling from, uh, from ricky dozen baba inoki to masa saito to Great Muta to Tanahashi Shinsuke Nakamura era, yes. There's no uh, breaking that connection. I mean, the connection will always be there, especially from the Japanese side to Japanese wrestling and American wrestling are, are tied together like family. It's just how yeah. it is. Isn't but that wonderful? It, it's good, and, and it's cool to when you, when you look closely, and the more closely you look, the more connections that you see from the past and even yeah. now. There's a lot. Not just here and there, but all over the place. Mm, yeah, inside the ring, outside the ring, and 
And not like we were talking about earlier, we're in a new era where it's a kind of a different strategy. It's a different approach to the excursion process. Yeah, Things are yeah. different. It's kind and of unfolding. Uh, Uemura will represent that era. Yeah. I think so too. He's your, yeah, he will be your next superstar for sure. And Ren and Narita Umino, as well. Umino, Umino too, yeah. Mm. They got a lot of talent. They got a lot of good talent. Yeah. All right, but all people I, like all people like great Okan coming back from you know England that he's he's different kind of star now. Yeah. You know, he just showed up on the uh, on AEW tonight. Great Okan. Yeah. Oh, he did. Okay. Yeah. Very interesting. Yeah. The he's like almost parts unknown. You know. Yeah. When I watched him, uh, he was at the Hollywood uh, New Japan Strong tapings a month ago, a month or two ago, and he's people really like this guy. He's very popular. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because he's talented. right out of Japanese anime culture. Yeah, I heard he's very popular outside of the ring, doing a video game kind of um, like a YouTube oh, video. Today's generation. Yeah, and so all over social media. Yeah. Mm hmm. Yeah, that's today's generation for sure. Yeah. All right, let's wrap it up for this week. I think that was a that was an interesting episode. So, if you have I questions, so. I think so. Yeah, if you have questions, anybody, comments, anything, let us know. Fumi, where can they reach you? Uh, on Twitter, Fumihiko Dayo at Fumihiko Dayo, F U M I H I K O D A Y O, Fumihiko Dayo, or just Fumi Saito on Facebook and message me first. I'll write you back right away. And I'm at Justin M. Nipper on Twitter, K-N-I-P-P-E-R. That's it for today. Fumi, take us away. So long from Tokyo.